0: Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy.
1: Sandy Clef Sean Rotar here on Mile High Sports, 98.1 FM, 107.5 HD3. You can watch us at MileHighSports.com slash watch or watch us at MileHighSports.com slash listen. Available via the Mile High Sports app. Our producer, executive producer. is the great Danny Bailey. You can call or text us and we'll get to uh, some of our texts here in just a few moments. At 303-831-1340. The big sports stories of the afternoon. Involves 72-year-old head coaching icons, Pete Carroll and Nick Saban. Uh, Saban retiring at Alabama. More on that in a moment. Uh, Carroll out in Seattle as head coach. But this is a little different from the other firings you've been hearing and reading about uh, from Black Monday on through today uh, in the National Football League. This is a little bit different. Carroll remains in the organization. He has been reassigned. Um, Our friend, Dr. Rick Perea, will join us in about 25 minutes and he has some special insight uh, on this story. He was well aware of what was going on before the story broke earlier this afternoon, and we had a chance uh, to uh, talk about it at length, and you'll hear more from Rick Perea on that coming up here in about 25 minutes. Uh, Carol, of course, uh, a Super Bowl champion in Seattle. Nick Saban, a six-time national title winner as head coach at Alabama he has won 7 national championships including one at LSU 12 conference titles 11 in the SEC one in the MAC and over the past quarter century plus during the BCS and CFP eras Saban has won 7 national titles the next three winningest coaches when it comes to national championships have combined only one as many as seven urban Meyer with three Kirby smart with two Dabo Swinney with two. That's the extent to which Nick Saban has say, for a two year interlude as head coach of the Miami dolphins dominated the college football scene and emerged as one of the greatest, if not the greatest college coach of all time, 201 wins at Alabama tied with the late great Vince Dooley out of Georgia for second most uh, wins at a single SEC school all time. Bear Bryant, the record holder with 232 wins in 25 years at Alabama. But as you can tell, doing some quick mathematics, Nick Saban had a better winning percentage at Alabama in 17 years than Bear Bryant did over a quarter century in Tuscaloosa. And uh, when you think of Nick Saban, you think of uh, all-time wins, uh, 292, 71, and one on the all-time FBS list, 12th in NCAA college football history. That covers all divisions. With those 292 wins, Nick Saban is not a numbers guy. If he were, you'd imagine that he might be interested in 300 wins as a college football coach. Apparently, he's not. This is the same Nick Saban who said back in November, if you are considering retirement, you might as well be retired. He said, I'm not at that stage yet. I'm not considering retirement. Of course, Alabama made the college football playoff. Once again, they've done that eight out of ten times in the college football playoff era. Uh, They weren't supposed to make it this year, especially after a September loss at home to Texas, but they got in by beating Georgia in the SEC championship game and gave Michigan a much tougher game than Washington did on Monday night in the national championship game at the Rose Bowl this year, which was, uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, the college football playoff semifinal round. Uh, happened to be at the Rose Bowl this year. And Alabama was leading late in the fourth quarter, 20-13 to 13 over Michigan before the Wolverines rallied to score the tie and touchdown and then win the game in overtime. 27 to 20. That turns out to be Nick Saban's final game as a head coach. He chooses retirement at the end of 72, uh, but he does not leave the cupboard bare for his successor. Alabama was uh, rated as having, I believe, by 247 Sports as the uh, best recruiting uh, round in uh, college football this year. Um, number two nationally, and uh, the quarterback, Jalen Milrow, is coming back next year. But uh, I imagine uh, very few players were expecting this announcement today from Nick Saban. Elsewhere, yes, more on the retirement of Pete Carroll. We'll hear from George Payton in a few moments, but uh, we have some text line reaction. At 303-831-1340, you can call or text us at that number. Danny Bailey, we have some text line reaction to the Saban retirement.
0: Yeah, this one uh from Man of the People. Do you think Saban quit because of NIL?
1: Um, having not read any quotes uh on this matter from Saban himself, um My guess is no. Uh, I'm guessing that Saban was telling the truth in November when he said he wasn't considering retirement. But I'll tell you, he appeared this year, and especially late in the year, and even after what would appear to have been a crushing loss to Michigan in the college football playoff semifinals. He appeared to me. And I don't know Nick Saban, but uh, my friend Dr. Rick Perea worked with Nick Saban for many years at Alabama, and I've heard many Nick Saban stories. Uh, my good friend Terry Fry, uh, while he was working at the Sporting News, did a, a long-form profile on Nick Saban way back when Saban was at Michigan State and found him to be a fascinating person football character and got to know him pretty well. My guess is that Nick Saban appeared more relaxed than ever this season because maybe, maybe there developed a sense, especially in December when Alabama qualified for the college football playoff and I thought had more than a puncher's chance as the game with Michigan suggested, of winning yet another national championship, that knowing what it took this year to recover from that early season loss to Texas and having gone through another successful recruiting year, Nick Saban buries himself in his work. And he, better than anyone else, has to be the judge of how much is too much, when is enough enough. Everyone would like to go out on a high note. I suspect there would have been even more speculation about Saban retiring than there already was had Alabama won the national title on Monday night. I wouldn't have been surprised at all if that had happened to see a couple of days later, within 48 hours, Nick Saban retiring as a head coach. But maybe the way to interpret his relaxed mood over the course of this season, and particularly at the finish, maybe one way to interpret that should have been, hey, he's comfortable with what he's done. He has done as much. As any coach has ever done at one school, you're talking about more than one year out of every three winning a national title, six years out of 17. Bryant won national titles at Alabama, but he did it over a 25-year stretch. And the person to succeed Nick Saban is not necessarily a person to be envied, although I'm sure – It is in every way as attractive as any job in college football, but you are succeeding a legend in Nick Saban. But I don't think NIL was even the main driving force. If I had to make a guess, I wouldn't say that would even be the main driving force behind his retirement. Uh, I think many years ago, Nick Saban decided that he didn't need to be a head coach in the National Football League. He had tried that for two years in 05 and 06. And what would he have been? In his mid-50s, right, at that time, he had been Bill Belichick's defensive coordinator in Cleveland when Bill Belichick was the head coach of the Cleveland Browns in the early to mid-1990s. He had had a taste of pro football at that point, went back to college, became a head coach, and a national championship head coach at LSU, returned to the NFL as head coach of the Dolphins in 05. And in his first game coaching for the Miami Dolphins in 2005, he went up against a friend in Mike Shanahan, and the Dolphins skewered the Broncos down in Miami on a very hot, humid day, blew out the Broncos, who then went on to win the AFC West, And get all the way to the AFC championship game. That was one, in my opinion, of the five best Bronco teams of all time. And Nick Saban, though he had a losing record over two years in Miami, was a pretty good NFL head coach. What drove Nick Saban out of the NFL was not the coaching itself, but the fact that he had so little control over football operations. It was Nick Saban who argued strenuously for the Dolphins in 2006 to go out and sign Drew Brees before Sean Payton could coach Drew Brees in Miami. The Dolphins had an opportunity to sign Drew Brees. Drew Brees, was coming off a shoulder injury. A lot of people, including apparently those in the Miami front office, felt that Drew Brees was through after that shoulder injury. He had not been a quarterback possessed of a powerful arm before the injury, and a lot of people thought he would go the way of uh, other quarterbacks. Chad Pennington comes to mind, who uh, were not strong-arm quarterbacks suffered shoulder injuries, and never really recovered. Brian Greasy had shoulder injuries here in Denver and never fully developed into the kind of quarterback that he appeared to be in 2000 for the Broncos. But Nick Saban believed in Drew Brees and wanted to sign him. He was overruled by his colleagues, uh, which I believe at that time included George Payton. I'm not saying he was overruled by Peyton, among others. I have no idea what George Payton's position was at that time on uh, Drew Brees. But I believe, uh, Danny, you can check me on this. We have a few minutes left uh, on our program today uh, to see if Peyton was still with the Dolphins uh, back in 2006 and was part of the Dolphin management team that eventually decided on Dante Culpepper, the former Viking quarterback, big, strong-arm quarterback. Ahead of Drew Brees, who then, of course, signed, as we all know, with the New Orleans Saints and became Sean Payton's quarterback for all but one year of uh, Payton's time as head coach of the New Orleans Saints. So uh, that's yeah, with the, the that's,
0: Dolphins. Oh, one to oh, uh, six uh, director of pro personnel
1: and director pro personnel. So, uh, yes, as director of pro personnel, I'm guessing he weighed in again. I wouldn't presume to uh, guess at what his position may have been pro or con regarding Drew Brees at that time, but George Payton and Nick Saban do know each other. They have worked together for a couple of years in the Miami uh, organization. So uh, that's uh, all part of uh, the Nick Saban story and the reason he went back. And they were in search at the time, if you'll remember, in 2007 at Alabama, They had fallen on hard times. Now, hard times at Alabama aren't equivalent to hard times at places like, oh, the University of Colorado, for example. Uh, uh, Two different levels of hard times. Hard times at Alabama means, you know, 10, 15 years between national championships. Those are viewed as hard years when you aren't winning national championships at a place like Alabama. Those are hard times even though coaches who get dismissed during periods like that at Alabama have winning records. And, you know, I think of people like Bill Curry, uh, Gene Stallings, who did win a national championship at Alabama, uh, some other pretty good coaches along the way at Alabama between Bear Bryant and Nick Saban, some very good coaches, uh, most all of whom had a degree of success that would be appreciated and rewarded at most schools. But Saban was brought in to fix what was wrong at Alabama, and it didn't take him long to find a fix. It was not great right away, not national championship stuff from the beginning, but quickly Alabama became a year-in, year-out national championship contender. And apart from the first year, Nick Saban won 10 games or more every year, including this last one at Alabama. So why not, if you can't go out absolutely on top, well, he was four minutes from getting to the college football playoff championship game this year. Four minutes. When Alabama was up late in the fourth quarter, just a handful of minutes away from getting to the college football playoff championship game, why not go out on that note? And I believe Nick Saban this year of the 17 years he spent at Alabama did as good a coaching job this year as he's ever done. So in that sense, uh, he does uh, go out on top. Uh, Danny Bailey, we have about five more minutes here, correct? Yep. five more minutes. So, uh, well... uh, take a listen at uh, some of the things that George Payton, the general manager of the Denver Broncos, talked about earlier this week at the Bronco press conference that uh, finished off the season, much to the chagrin of head coach Sean Payton, perhaps less so for George Payton and operating owner Greg Penner. But Payton was asked among many questions posed to him, about how the Broncos plan to navigate over the next year or two with all this dead money either on the books now or expected to be on the books once the Broncos release quarterback Russell Wilson.
0: Obviously, any dead money, you know, obviously this, whatever, if this would be extreme, we've prepared for any scenario, you know, with Rich Hurtado, who runs our cap, and, and uh, we'll have flexibility either way to do what we need to do. We're not going to be on the first wave of free agency like we were last year. You can't do that every year. We'll be very strategic, very specific on, on what positions, what players uh, you know, uh, we try to sign. And then, obviously, we got to hit on the draft. We're picking high, and uh, we have six picks. Uh, you know, we, could, we could have more. You know we like picks, and, uh, and we'll go from there.
1: That's George Payton talking about uh, the dead money cap situation. And, yes, they do have a capologist and uh, Richard Tato. Uh, Payton is knowledgeable about these things, uh, very well qualified. But it's in part due to the mistakes George Payton has made that the Broncos find themselves in this position in the first place. And the Russell Wilson deal will go down in history, most likely, as if not the worst, it would be the worst for now, but maybe looking back 20, 30 years from now, somebody will be even more foolish and release a player with more than $85 million in dead cap money, counting against the salary cap, either spread out, kind of split over two years, or taken on in one year, and that, of course, would be next year, 2024. That depends on uh, uh, the designation and the timing of uh, the release. Uh, The Broncos can do all the planning they want to do and try to work around the edges all they can. That will be an enormous problem. $85 million in dead money on one player would be a record, more than double the amount that the Indianapolis Colts had to absorb when they got rid of Matt Ryan. And that was more than $40 million. That seemed a huge amount for one player at the time, but nothing compared to Russell Wilson. And finally, amid some suggestions here locally that the Broncos deal, perhaps their most marketable player in Patrick Sertan. Now well, he was George Payton's first draft pick. And here's what George Payton had to say about Patrick Sertan. And yes, the likelihood that in the off season, Patrick Sertan may be getting a long-term contract extension.
0: I mean, we're all big fans of Pat. You know, I think Sean said we're going to have a you know big meeting in a couple weeks and, and, uh, kind of go through the entire roster, Pat included. And, and you know, we want Pat here a long time. I'm not prepared to make any statements on, on anything moving forward.
1: Well, he doesn't close the door on the possibility of trading him, but that was George Payton's pride and joy. the First draft pick he ever made as general manager of the Denver Broncos. And he picked Sertan over Justin Fields. Probably the right move based on their career accomplishments to date, but I also picked him over Micah Parsons. And I don't know that you could make the same favorable argument in favor of Patrick Satan on the basis of the comparison with Micah Parsons. Anyway, we're done with comparisons, commentary for this day. Uh, We hope to have Sean back with us tomorrow afternoon, starting at four. Until then, be well and stay with us. Coming next, our weekly podcast, our checkup from the neck up on Wellness Wednesdays with Dr. Rick Perea and much, much more on all of the turmoil over the last few days in the National Football League and particularly on the reassignment of Pete Carroll, who is no longer the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. That's just ahead. Stay with us. Welcome to yet another edition of Wellness Wednesday, our weekly podcast. I'm Sandy Clough. To my left is Dr. Rick Perea, and we will be speaking for the next 25 minutes on the subjects of the day relating to sports psychology, and we have a great place to start with the news breaking within the hour that Pete Carroll is out as head coach of the Seattle Seahawks' But, Dr. Rick Paria, you're familiar with this situation. Yes. Is he really out or just being reassigned to a role that perhaps is more suitable for him at age 72?
2: Yeah, I, he's being reassigned. Um, you know, a lot of people in this area may have some information about this, but, you know, as you know, Sandy, Trevor Moad was a— um, A mentalist, I'll call him, because he wasn't a psychologist. He was a mentalist that worked with Russ Wilson for many years. And he passed away a year and a half ago, um, unfortunately. And I knew Trevor well. We worked together in Alabama. Um, So Pete and Trevor formed a business together, a mental enhancement kind of culture, uh, organizational performance business. So Pete is very well versed in this area of establishing cultures and leadership And yeah, I, you know, I think if Pete had a strong point as a coach was, is, was in his leadership, his energy, his passion, establishing a great culture. And if he had a downfall, it was the X's and O's part of it. So I think it's a really good fit. He's going to be reassigned in charge of establishing a, a great culture with the organization and helping with the leadership piece. And so, um, you know, whoever they hire as the head coach will obviously have to be congruent with that and be consistent with that. But yeah, I think it really fits Pete well, especially, I think he's around 73, 74 years 72, old. I 72. i He is I'm the oldest him. coach. Yeah, I am. Uh, or him. was the oldest yeah. coach
1: in, uh, yeah. in the NFL. But it's fascinating because it isn't anything like the other head coaching dismissals right. around the league or uh, changes that have been couched. Uh, In different ways, particularly among assistant coaches, and I want to get into that, too, because there's some fascinating uh, stories out there relating to uh, the firing of certain assistants and whether they name themselves or not taking shots at the head coach and the organization on the way out the door. I'm yeah. thinking of Jacksonville where Doug Peterson fired a bunch of assistant coaches and one anonymously quoted as saying the solutions have left. The problems remain. <laughs> Obviously yeah. that fired assistant sure. considered himself to be part of the potential solution. Sure. And yet uh, he is out the door. And of course in New York, um, Wink Martindale, former Bronco defensive yep. coordinator way, way back in the Josh McDaniels era, was uh, resigned, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, is, is the proper term after some of his defensive assistants were let go. right? And he obviously objected to that. It was kind of a shot across the bow. Mm-hmm. He went in to speak with head coach Brian Dable. And left cursing him out loudly, according to reports, mm-hmm. and proceeding to leave the building. Having apparently resigned, but if it is a resignation, the Giants would have Martindale under contract and could control where he works next. Sure. And would probably object to who's going to work for, oh, let's say, the Philadelphia Eagles in Mm -hmm. 2024. But in any case, we'll get to that in just a few moments. But Pete Carroll is, as you've suggested, a different kind of coach. And you've been around him enough to know him Mm -hmm. a bit. My sense is, uh, obviously, we don't know who his successor will be uh, at this point. But there are a lot of candidates out there. But this seemed to be a move, and tell me if I'm wrong, that Pete Carroll basically accepted. Oh yeah. And I, and, and wasn't dragged kicking and screaming from the right. coaching ranks, remains with the organization in good standing.
2: Yeah. Not only not only was he not kicking and screaming, I think he realized it was time. I think he realized that, you know, there's a lot of energy that it takes to be a head coach for a National Football League team. Even
1: for an energetic guy like Carroll, with his
2: 72 going on 32. Right. But I think he, he understands, since he's been working in organizational performance with Trevor in the backgrounds, in the offseason, he's understood how important leadership is, how important culture is in any organization. And I think that's one of the messages that I have today is that we need to understand that better because – you know, when every time these GMs or executive vice presidents get promoted and fired, we understand, I mean, we got, we, we got a kid um, from the 49ers that was hired a few years ago as a GM and he's already gone, you know? And it's like, you you start to ask yourself, okay, after two or three years, are you, you're just shooting in the dark as to hire these people and their competencies and acumen. As you know, I feel very strongly about Adam Peters. I've known Adam Peters for close to nine years and he's a very strong leader, and he's a very great communicator, and he understands how to establish a climate and culture. Climates right now, cultures over time. And what's ironic to me, Sandy, is we have a billion dollar industry like the NFL that doesn't understand organizational performance from an organizational perspective. And they put too much value on talent. They put too much value on talent, not only on the field, But in the front office, we've got to have congruence, we got to have cooperation. And you see players now like, like cup in LA. Um, When I when we interviewed him in Miami, I knew he's going to be a success because of it. Because of what? Not his size, not his speed, not his talent, but his personality, his conviction, his strength, and we're we're starting to find that out. Receiver after receiver that doesn't run a four three, that doesn't Rams have in some another six one three. just like Koppin exactly, and uh, Puka Nakua right that doesn't isn't six four, that isn't you know two percent body fat, but they're players that do the right thing. They run the right routes. They're 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 early to meetings. They're strong leaders in the organization in their rooms. And we're starting to understand, it's sad to say, starting to understand the value of organizational performance and hiring people that have that competency. I'm sorry, football coaches that came up through the ranks as a position coordinator, head coach, do not understand organizational performance. So we need that piece of the pie to be added, and more and more teams are starting to discover that. Are the teams that I mentioned earlier
1: Jacksonville, the Giants, who went through a good deal of turmoil uh, earlier this week when the head coach remained, but assistants were fired, maybe by the head coach, maybe by the front office slash ownership. Mike Vrabel in Tennessee, perhaps the most surprising move as he was fired clearly by the owner. Right although the GM, a young GM, may have had some say in that. Tell me what distinguishes those organizations, and maybe the one here in Denver, that seem to be functioning in a way that is counterproductive. And the organizations, you just referenced one specifically, the Los Angeles Rams. I think of Sean McVay. Mm -hmm. I think of Matt LaFleur with the Green Bay Packers, two coaches who had teams this year that that at midseason seemed to have no shot at making the playoffs, both teams in the playoffs. That's in the NFC. In the AFC, I think of Mike Tomlin, whose team was outscored this year by 20 points across 17 games and yet won 10 of those 17 games and is on a hot streak going into the playoffs right with a third string quarterback at the helm
2: yeah well and what people don't realize with tomlin he subscribes to that form storm norm and perform model you know you are playing your best football in the last quadrant see this is an example sandy if i were to go to 32 head coaches right now and ask them what's the linear model that we study in organizational performance they'll say what are you talking about not thirty-two. There'll be about twenty-five or twenty-six that would not know it, and there's about five or six that know it. Tomlin knows it. Okay, he understands. And I add it. Sean
1: McDermott to that list in yeah. Buffalo, another Absolutely. team that seemed
2: yes. dead six weeks ago. Yeah, and you know, and yeah, you're one hundred percent right. And these guys who I know and I Sean talk McDermott to,
1: and Tomlin, by the way, roommates. Yeah,
2: like William and Mary. Well, <laughs> and and I just talked to McDermott about three days ago regarding some other things, and they're 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 right where they want to be. And it's, it's by design, you know, and we don't have enough. The difference is you ask the question is what's the difference between those organizations is they don't understand that it is more than just football. It is more than just X's and O's. It's, it's running an organization that has an understanding of how leadership and followership are interdependent. Now, if you ask a head coach in the NFL, tell me how much time you spend on followership. They'll look at you like you're you're you know you're green, you're the color green. If you don't understand leadership and the interdependency with followership, there's psychology between that. Like if you don't understand who's a follower in your organization, who's a leader, and that interdependence between those two. You don't understand organizational performance. And so you've got to have a spoke in the wheel. It's not the will, but you have to have a spoke in the wheel that understands how to address organizational performance. Because at the core level, Sandy, the Denver Broncos are not a team. At a core level, they're an organization. And there's two sides of that organization. There's a football side and there's a business side. If you don't understand that your team is actually an organization at its core level, that's the issue right there and you know what i've been around enough owners and you know that i've been around enough owners in this league that don't understand that their team is a toy it literally it literally is they're a billionaire they can afford to buy something and they don't understand that there's this organizational piece to it and the teams that are having success are starting to hire people who understand the climate and the culture and how to build that and allowing that to come in as they spoke in the wheel again it's not the wheel but it's a spoke in the will that you better address because otherwise you're going to go through coaches, you're going to go through GMs, like, you know, like there's no tomorrow. And you can't do that. Teams start to lose respect when they find out, like, man, this guy. I, I, as a matter of fact, I know Adam Peters for a fact will not interview with certain teams because he knows. He hasn't, that, as a matter of fact. Yeah, he's exactly. turned down interviews oh, in years now. He, he's turned them down left and right in the last three or four years Absolutely. because they have a reputation of, You know, plug and play, plug and play, didn't work, plug and play. There is a remedy to this. There is a strategy to this, and he knows the organizations that have that, and those are the only organizations he will interview for.
1: The Broncos conducted a press conference earlier this week. Sean Payton spoke. George Payton, the general manager, spoke. Greg Penner, uh, the day-to-day operating owner of the Denver Broncos, spoke. And I was – talking myself uh, today, in fact, earlier today uh, with someone who is very close to a Bronco executive uh, without uh, saying too much about who that executive might be. Uh, This person probably is more on the business administrative side Mm -hmm. than the football side. And uh, I was told that this is an organization that continues to be lost in the wilderness mm-hmm. without a clue as to how to proceed, and with three major problems salary cap mismanagement. Yep. No quarterback. Yep. <laughs> and no draft picks. Uh, at least not enough to address the myriad of problems that exist with the Denver Broncos football team. And if you asked anybody out there, including any of the owners, with maybe one or two possible exceptions, what the difference was between team and organization, football side and business side even. They couldn't tell you. Yeah, The owners are strictly data-driven. Yeah. They don't know how to relate to people. These are Walmart people who rely on data and have been very successful in doing that. But football and sports people business yeah. or businesses
2: yeah well here's you can't simply rely on data right you mentioned those three issues who who let, let's trace this who's who's driven that who's the salary cap i know who that is there's a person there's the quarterback there's a the draft choices there's one person this organization needs to start at the top and clean house like you that's not your gm that's not your gm okay you think it's you think you're gonna sh- change him it's kind of like a man and a woman in a marriage right like well he'll change or she'll change no they're not never they're not going to change he's why you're in this situation what you don't have the courage you can't eat his salary yes you can And especially when you got talented people out there like an adam peters that i mean if he came back here sandy the whole climate and culture would change this organization quickly and you know and it might even change at the head coach job too, at the head coaching position. But again, when you have people that don't know what they don't know, I met them at the at the Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, this summer. I met the uh, Penner and a few of the other ones, and um, it was interesting. It was interesting because I didn't come away as sensing that there was this energy and positivity, and it's it's more like just. It was. It, I felt like I was under scrutiny. Now, of course, I dress a little bit different than the average person. Uh, I think it's funny more than anything. I, everybody calls me the Adam, the the w- Patch Adams of the NFL is what I've been called. But but it, it wasn't looked upon like it was funny. He kind of looked at me like he was judging, yeah. and I felt that. And I thought, you know, really, if you, then if you're going to judge me, you're going to be judging some of your players too, because those guys are out there too. I just don't know. If if this group understands and knows what they don't know and they need to have some leadership within that organization that really, again, understands organizational performance, do they understand it and fall in terms of Walmart and what they've done there? Sure. OK, they understand human capital, but do they understand this industry, this industry in particular, not only with players, but with coaches, because as you've seen this past week, there's been a lot of drama with with players. I mean, with coaches leaving and then. You know, a few coaches just stabbing others in the back. And I i'd never seen around it, the NFL, Yeah, around and the NFL, proving your
1: point And I've never that, seen that before that for every functional team. There are probably at least four that are dysfunctional.
2: Absolutely. And it shouldn't be that way in a billion dollar industry, in a billion dollar industry when we can hire leadership. And again, you know, I'm I'll, I'll point to the San Francisco 49ers. You know, they hired a guy that had nothing, no football background no football background, but he had great leadership in terms of business performance and organizational performance, and you can see what this, that organization has done consistently over the last few years, Um, and this person I'm talking about is a very, very humanistic person, you can connect with him, you can talk with him, Um, and then I've been with organizations that people are not humanistic, they can't talk, you know, Um, and I can name them if you'd like to, because I I think it's fun to call them out on that. Well, uh, <laughs> we, we we can do that, but not before we mention uh,
1: uh, that Dr. Rick Perea is a performance psychologist who not only is involved with NFL teams, NBA teams, Major League Baseball teams. Here locally, the World Champion Broncos back in 2015, the Colorado Rockies uh, during the time in which the Rockies were actually. Um, building towards some degree of success two years in a row in the playoffs in 2017 and 2018, and, of course, the current world champions of the NBA, the Denver Nuggets, uh, with whom Dr. P worked as well. But most of all, and most importantly, Dr. P helps middle and high school performers to reach peak levels. So whether you're an everyday performer at work, at play, or at school, call Dr. P today at 720-287-0933. That's 720 287 or look them up at Dr. P at think1number4u.org. That's think1number4u.org, and um, I, I want to get into that too, uh, but rather than Name names, which would take the rest of the time we we have on this program today, the teams that don't get it. Tell me if you believe having worked in the NBA, having worked in Major League Baseball, having worked with baseball players individually, baseball managers individually, NBA coaches and players individually. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about a few on this podcast over the last few weeks. Are those sports equally stubborn about embracing not data. Everybody wants data and analytics nowadays, but embracing some of the concepts that you've been talking about here week after week. Yeah. Is it the same in the NBA and Major League Baseball as it is in the NFL? Is the NBA perhaps further advanced? That seems to be the NBA's reputation, that they're a little more progressive in their thinking. Is that, in fact, true in your experience? My
2: experience they're all three equally ignorant. Um, I've seen the the one thing in MLB, Major League Baseball, is they require three mental skills coaches they have for years. And so they at least understand that part of it and they understand how that influences organizational performance, um, the mental side of the game. But I think all of them in terms of organizational performance are equally ignorant, if you will. Um, I think many teams in the NBA are starting to understand. I mean, um, uh, Karnas, you know, uh, Arturis, yeah, Sovas, who's with the, with the Chicago Bulls Chicago, now, yeah. and he's bringing a climate and culture aspect to them. It's taking time. I know there's, sure. it doesn't necessarily show on the court. And they've had killer injuries. Right. Killer and, injuries. But, but he understands it. I mean, I've spoken to him individually on many occasions, so he understands it. Um, I do think if there's a slight edge, it is the NBA that understands organizational performance. But I'm telling you, the NFL, Major League Baseball, those two have been stubborn. And, and here's the thing. Here's why it's taking so long, Sandy. So when you come in and you talk to an EVP or a GM of, an, of a team and you say, you know, we really need to focus on some organizational performance, they have been around. They have been coached. They have learned. Their brains have been conditioned to think they focus on the sport. And that means, you know, the performance of the players, the performance of the coaches. But if you don't take care of the organizational side, you will not be able to support those two areas of the organization appropriately. You just won't. It won't last over time. And, you know, so many people talk about talent. And talent is important to a certain extent, but also cohesion and collaboration is very important for performance on the field and like i said you're seeing more and more teams understand you know just because a kid runs four three or four two in the 40 and you know has a 45 inch vertical and all these checks off all the boxes physiologically does not mean he's going to be a success in the nfl caleb williams is a great example i wouldn't be at all surprised if he has very little success in the nfl because i fascinating yeah i don't think his skills transfer to the nfl so i there's there's teams that are going to take him and spend multi-millions of dollars, and he will not necessarily it's be a success. It's possible. And there's a kid. The team
1: drafting first, which is Chicago. Although right. Carolina has the pick, they traded it to yeah. Chicago. It's possible the Bears could draft him, and there are a lot of people who are saying that they should. Uh, there are also probably 40%, 50% of People who follow the Bears closely, you say, stick with Justin Fields based on what you know. But would you have a, a recommendation in that sense? And ex- explain again, what, wh- where is Caleb Williams
2: deficient in your in the, opinion? Well, number one, the neck up. I mean, okay. the neck up. He's very, very, his personality assessments have graded out very poorly for him. Um, from the neck down, he doesn't necessarily make the – he's not a quantitative find either. The other thing, too, I mean, how do you – what's his psychology? Like, let me give you an example. And and I'm not avoiding the question, but this will answer it. You, How many Brock Purdy's are out there? I mean, you think he's the only Most one? Most of them are undiscovered. That's what I, I'm saying. I, Is they, he, he got the only discovered. one? He's not the only one. Uh, There's guys out there at eastern michigan at slippery rock maybe yeah. you know those kind of schools Understood. that can play but the league is lazy the league is lazy they don't understand what they don't understand if i go if i go um, recruit a kid that's 5'10 195 and he doesn't work out as a quarterback they're going to say what were you thinking but if he's 6'4 220 and he's athletic and he's got a strong arm and he doesn't work out they're going to say well i saw what you saw on him so people aren't willing to risk they're willing to look and beat the bushes a little bit to find these players. And it's really sad because there are so many quarterbacks out there that can play in this league that aren't six three, six four, six five and have rocket arms. They have adequate arms. They're not, they're six one, they're six two, but they're not understood how they could lead these teams through the mental side, the neck up. I've
1: had this argument with people. And you can tell me if you think I'm on the right track or the wrong track here. My contention has been that though he was Mr. Irrelevant, the final pick in the draft, Brock Purdy was drafted with intent by the San Francisco 49ers, not by accident, but by (laughs) intent. And I think that way, And you know more about Adam Peters than I do. You know him better than I do. I know him in passing, but you know him very well. Yes. Tell me as best you can, as honest as you can be, whether it was a combination of both or was it clearly a more intentional pick than it was an accidental pick and Purdy kind of fell into their laps and worked out when, some other higher draft picks
2: did not i can look you straight in the eye and tell you Brock Purdy was an intentional pick 100% they knew when they could get him when they couldn't get him things like that and they took him when they they could get him they they were they loved him from day one and they like and he tested well they knew he was humble i mean you, you know what not only is he a good player on the field you talk to his teammates, they love him. They they, they loved him from the first time he walked into the huddle. And you know why? Why? Because he's cuz he's 6'4", 220 and athletic? No. Of course not. Because it's it's his neck up. It's his personality. It's his wee 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 mentality, not a me 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 mentality. So many of these kids are me me me, how do I how do I get ahead? So when somebody comes in at the quarterback positions and they're a wee 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 guy, it's like, "Whoa." And this guy can play and this guy's encouraging. And he's so collaborative and cooperative. And even if he goes out and throws for 350 yards and three touchdowns, he's not he's not pointing to himself. He still goes into press conferences, and he's humble. There are Brock Purdy's out there in every single draft, but people won't beat the bushes to find them because it takes that much more effort. And if he doesn't work out, the GM's going to come to you and say, what were you thinking in the, in the college scouting site? I've seen it, Sandy. he
1: doesn't fit the physical profile. Exactly.
2: I've seen it. I've seen it in the rooms with the Miami Dolphins. I've seen it happen.
1: Trey Lance fits the physical profile. There you go. His career is, if not over, certainly on hold at the moment. That's right. Young guy who sits on the bench or is not even active in Dallas. Right? You have Sam Darnold, who is the backup to Purdy. Number one pick.
2: Right. My career sons, backup. At my, best. my sons were pointing that out. They're like, dad, there's a, a first round draft choice backing up a seventh round draft choice. I said, welcome to the NFL. I said, First pick versus last pick. Yeah. And, and, and you the know, last pick is exactly. playing over the first pick. Exactly. And I hope more people take note of this and they start to say, OK, there's a reason why this is happening. Because we're not evaluating from the neck up as well as we can we're not understanding who these people's personality is, who how they're going to fit in, how they're going to collaborate with our teammates. Are they going to make pe- people better, or are they going to be very me, me, me oriented? So I think when teams understand how to do that, and I, and you know, Sandy, I, I've i been around head coaches that I explain the mental side to them, and they listen. And then I've been around other head coaches where I explain the mental side, and they say, no, I got it, just handle that kid that's got a problem over there. They don't want to learn. And what's going to happen in this league eventually, it's going to start to weed out the people that don't understand the mental side and also organizational performance because they're going to start to see, wow, this team's having success with slower receivers, with slower players, smaller players. They don't necessarily have to be the most talented because we've seen those guys that come through the draft and run a 4-2, the kid from Washington, Ross, who ran a 4-2, and everybody was like, oh, my gosh, it's going to elevate him to the first round. I'm like, why? Why no. would it? Because he can run a for – This is not a track meet. You know, he needs to run his. Does he run good routes? Is he collaborative? Does he go back to the huddle and say, All right, next time we'll get it? Or does he go back and say, Man, I'm open. Man, exactly. I'm open. Which like you got to hear all me. the demons you know? say. Right. They're
1: open every time. Exactly. And so they're not open at the right time, but they're
2: open every time. Right. So we've got to understand better that mentality, the personality piece, and how it fits in an organization in regards to its performance. Another rich
1: session here yes. on our uh, weekly podcast. This is wellness Wednesday. Check up from the neck out, uh, the neck up and yeah. the neck out too. <laughs> maybe neck uh, out too. We can, <laughs> uh, we can discuss that on a future program. Uh, we of course broadcast every Wednesday at five 30 on mile high sports, and we are available via podcast at Milehighsports.com. We wish you well, and we'll talk more next week as the NFL playoffs get underway.